Hello and welcome to the Igniting Change podcast. I'm your host, Celia Hirsch. I'm a volunteer at Igniting Change. In this series, you will hear from individuals and organisations working to bridge the gap and amplify the voices of those doing it tough. Igniting Change is an intentionally tiny, not-for-profit organisation in Balaclava, Melbourne, Australia. We've been lucky enough to work with the most extraordinary people, and it's our great privilege to introduce them to you. Our guest today is Professor George Newhouse, a human rights lawyer, adjunct professor of law at Macquarie University, and principal solicitor at the National Justice Project. Hi, George. Good morning. Great to talk to you. Just to go right back, how was the National Justice Project born? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I had the good fortune to work with Major Dan Morey, who was David Hicks' lawyer. You might remember him. He was the Australian who was held in Guantanamo Bay. And um, we both worked at a commercial law firm running their pro bono section. And when that shut down, Dan and I decided to set up the National Justice Project, a pro bono law firm that was designed based on the U.S. model. That's one of the things that Dan brought to us, was a U.S. style of lawyering where we were activists. And we began about seven years ago as a result of that connection. We hadn't really seen anything like that in Australia before. How did you start? What did you start with? All right, so Dan pointed out that When he came to Australia, he noticed there's nothing like the NAACP or the uh, ACLU, the National Association of Coloured People Uh or the American Civil Liberties Union. They were activist law firms that were creating change through the law. And we basically decided to set that up in Sydney. So what's a bit unusual about it is we're prepared to roll up our sleeves and take legal action where we see an opportunity for societal change. So we get hundreds of calls a year, but we can only take on very few of them and only those that we think that will make change. I've spoken before about how we got kids off Nauru and how Mm -hmm. that led to legislative change Mm -hmm. and ultimately led to a reform in the way that people were treated in offshore detention, asylum seekers and, uh, and the like. That's the kind of... Uh, approach that we take. We see a problem, we apply our strategic minds to that problem, and we use really unusual forms of law to create change. It's a bit of a hack approach. Mm. We sit down and work out how we can hack the law. So using the law as activists to make change. Essentially. And you were mentioning in previous discussions about how you used inquests and yes. and things. Can royal you explain how you use inquests and royal commissions to bring about change? Look, we, we live in a society where it's getting harder and harder to get the truth out of government and their authorities. And one of the few ways you can do it is through inquests when sadly there's a death or royal commissions. So at the moment, there's a royal commission into the treatment of people with disabilities. And for many years, governments have have got laws that hide the way they treat, for example, children that are taken into state care. You're not allowed to discuss publicly what happens to those children. And they are treated in an incredibly appalling way by state care. The things that happen in state care, if an adult did to their own child, you'd you'd go to jail for. So it's Dickensian. Yes. And you're not allowed to talk about it. So the Royal Commission gave us an opportunity to expose the way a young Aboriginal child 
with fetal alcohol syndrome, was being denied medical care. His carer was begging. He had a foster mum mm. who was begging for for the child to be assessed and treated and given support. Nothing. And you, normally you can't talk about it, but that Royal Commission gave us the opportunity to expose it and demand change. And that's what investigations into deaths can do too. And we've been able to get law reform through Royal Commissions and uh, coronial inquests. Mm. I probably need to go back at this point and just say, what drew you to this type of work? Why are you standing out there doing, was it 20,000 hours of pro bono work a year? Yeah. Why? Well, that's a really good question too. I don't get asked that very often. Believe it or not, I started my career in banking and finance Mm. and I worked for JP Morgan, both here in Australia and in New York, and then moved back to law in London, uh, working in banking and finance as well. But I got to a point where I realised I wanted to work with people. Mm -hmm. Banking and finance is great when you're raising a young family and you want to pay off a mortgage uh, and if you want that kind of career. But I wanted to do more and I wanted to give back to communities that had nurtured me. Why was that inside you and not inside Joe Blow who's buying his next $40 million house? I, I can – you – I mean, do you really want me to go yeah, into my I want personal you to... motivation? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I think there's two things. Um, when I look back on my past, my mother was a widow at 19. I was born after my father died and – I was fortunate to be nurtured by a small Jewish community in Brisbane where I really felt connected and loved. And I always appreciated the care that people gave to me. And I had a family of people that were community-oriented and gave to others. And so in some ways it was kind of not drummed into me, but I learned that culture of giving back through my family. I also think perhaps... You know, I'm not a deeply religious person, but, you know, some of that has rubbed off on me over the years. And I don't know, I just felt compelled to give back. And I wasn't satisfied just, you know, working for a bank. Mm. And it, it drove me when I heard about Cornelia Rao and Vivian Salon to offer to help. Mm. And I did offer the family help. And one thing led to another. And now I do this as a full-time job. Mm. And... I never look back. I'm the happiest I've ever been. I know that sounds bizarre because... No, no it doesn't at all. Because I deal with tragedy and mm-hmm. trauma every day. But what I find uplifting is that I help people through the system. I give them hope and so does the National Justice Project. And we are creating change. It's sometimes agonisingly slow. Mm. But when you see it, it's the most satisfying thing in the world. You're kind of picking the lock and helping these people open up the doors yes. to, to get through and have outcomes they never would have imagined. That's right. And they don't have access to the mm. same resources as other people. That's right. That's a great analogy, the key in the lock. Mm. So you started with Cornelia Rao. Yes. Um, well, Vivian Salon and yeah. then Cornelia Rao yeah. about the same time. Wow. Such... Iconic is probably the wrong word, but they are both such momentous cases. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, possibly our listeners won't have heard of either of them. So if you can put them into a nutshell sure. for me and, and then talk about what you did. I will. And, and I think you're right. Those two cha- cases really changed people's minds at the time. Sadly, it's 15 years ago and the media cycle and society has moved on. Mm. But 15 years ago, it was a shocking realisation 
that a woman, two women mm. who were vulnerable and were perfectly legally in Australia ended up in the detention system being punished and one was even deported. An Australian citizen, Vivian Salon, mm. was wrongfully deported to the Philippines for four years. She had two children and all because of false assumptions made about her because she couldn't remember all her details because she'd been in, a, in an accident. She was deported and I saw that injustice and, and that really motivated me to fight for change. But when their cases were exposed, everyone was shocked. You know why? Cornelia Rao was like us. She was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman. Flight attendant. Flight attendant at Qantas. Mm. Beautiful woman. And how did she end up in that system? And suddenly people thought, whoa, this is a really cruel and inhumane system. Mm. Unfortunately, that system still exists, but because people are of colour or from foreign nations, we don't have quite as much sympathy. And our governments have spent many, many years dehumanising asylum seekers. Mm. And I think I really wish Australians would, would stop for a minute and think, hang on a minute, they're people just like us. Why don't we care? I mean, we saw when Djokovic was here and, and the Park Hotel... And the poor guys who were saying, you know, look, we've been here for years. And for a moment, I thought, wow, something's going to happen now. And it didn't. And people just don't care. Look, Not I, everyone, I, think, I think the reality is people do care. There's a core of people out there who do care. But they're kind of burned out. This has been going for years. Mm. You have the might of the government crushing people. And no matter what you say or do, government sees votes in being harsh on asylum seekers. Mm. So until there's bipartisan support, and you had that in the time of the Vietnamese boat people. You had yeah. Malcolm Fraser who put his heart and soul into integrating those boat people mm -hmm. into Australia. Mm -hmm. You could have an alliance between both sides of parliament in those days. Mm. Until we see that happen again, I fear that we won't be able to uh, see a marked change in policy. I don't think Australians are uncaring people. I think they do care. But we're so bombarded with information, we're so polarised now, mm. that it's not that people care, it's just that, 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 that I think they've given up. But I, I just want to say quickly, mm. there is hope. Look at the number of people that poured into the streets in the Black Lives Matter rallies yes. in 2020. Yep. Tens of thousands of people. Mm. Australians can get out in the streets and be motivated. Mm. Do you think, I mean, I, I don't really mean that people don't care, but it, it just feels like so many opportunities have come up and then nothing. I think it's partly the media's fault because I remember one of the refugees said on, on his Twitter feed that why hasn't anyone from mainstream media contacted me to do interviews? And all these other people are saying, but I want to do an interview with you, but it's not the same thing. And, and the problem is that if it's not, as you said, in the pages of the Herald Sun, then, you know, mainstream Australia is not, not reading it. Yep. And maybe if they are reading it, the slant might be negative. I agree. And, and if you take the Herald Sun reader, they are getting, unfortunately, a negative slant. And not only are they getting a negative slant, they're getting a negative slant for the last 20 years. And it builds up in people. So there are these automatic assumptions that people make about asylum seekers. Even the language... And First Nations. And First Nations. Even the language that the government uses, that they're illegals. They're not illegal. It's a perfectly legal right to apply for asylum. But by changing the narrative, 
and people's people are so busy just trying to survive in our society we've got covid we've got all these other pressures on us that they can only apply fleeting uh, glimpses at what's going on and it's hard to uh, accept the full narrative about the cruelty of what our of, of our uh, government is doing. And I think that's another thing. To actually sit there and digest how harsh these policies are is really hard. And I think people live in denial. Well, an example of that is raising the age. I mean, 10-year-old kids incarcerated. It's unimaginable. It is. And I think that's one thing that sticks in people's mind. Raise the Age campaign recently has been very successful because they put people Mm. like myself, they got us to put our 10-year-old photos on the internet Mm. and there were thousands of images of kids and you think that child should not be in jail. It was an extremely powerful message. Mm. But once again, it, it hasn't changed things, although change is slow. Governments around Australia have started to say, well, maybe 12 is appropriate. Just talking about helping people, uh, First Nations people, you've been helping um, refugees, disabled people. Yes. Well, how do you have to, or do you change your approach at all when you're dealing with different groups? How do you have to tailor your mm-hmm. approach? I mean, it's interesting. Often there's an intersection. Mm. When we're talking about the way emergency departments have fixated thinking and prejudicial thinking, mm-hmm. It actually applies across the board. One of the statistics that's quite astounding is that if you're a pregnant woman, you're less likely to be believed by emergency staff. They form an opinion that women who come in who are pregnant are, fa- are not faking but are complainers. Oh, okay. And They're so whinging. they diminish and they diminish their concerns. And and often if you're an Aboriginal woman, there'll be issues perhaps of disability or mental health. And there's an intersection of gender, race, disability. Mm. And we find that the prejudices cross over all of them. And if you're elderly, you you suffer those kind of shallow, short-sighted prejudices of people seeing you when you come into emergency. So I think one thing leads to another. But we tend to focus on First Nations people because they tend to get the worst of the worst. Mm. And even if you're an elderly person who does get bad treatment in a hospital, you often have an advocate, a family member who can come and advocate for Mm. you. But First Nations people find it the most difficult to get that kind of advocacy. Mm. But we do have to change our approach, obviously, but the principles are the same. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of pro bono work. There's 14 lawyers working in the organisation. How is it all funded? Well, (laughs) yes. Uh, Every year is a struggle. We don't take money from government, but we do have a a system of basically crowdfunding for about a third of our income, philanthropy for a third, and hopefully if we run some of these compensation cases against the government to get accountability, there might be some costs for the other third. And that's essentially how we run the place. Yeah. It's not exactly banking and finance, though, is it? (laughs) No. I mean, for the first four years, we've been going for seven. I didn't even take a salary. So, yes, you don't do it for the money. But we have some wonderful supporters. We could always do with more. Mm. But we have wonderful supporters. And I think, you know, you spoke earlier about people caring. Mm. I think one of the frustrations that people have is that they see injustice, but they don't know what they can do. Yeah. And I think we get a lot of support from people, even very small donors, $5, $5 donors, because they go, I like what they're doing. They, you know, they're getting a result. They may change. And I think that 
inspires people. They see there is hope. And that's something that we're very proud of. And I think that's one way that we do get a lot of support. Would you say that your work is principally concerned with giving people hope? Yes. When you look at it, it is about hope. And I have hope in the future. And I think a lot of our supporters and our staff have hope. Otherwise, we wouldn't do this work. But more importantly, we give our clients hope. The families Mm. who've lost someone in healthcare or in detention or in immigration detention or their children have been uh, brutalised in youth detention, Mm. they want change. You know, when we talk to them, they don't want money. They want to make sure that no other family has to experience this again. Mm. And that's what drives me. That's what drives a lot of our supporters. And that's what drives our family. Families. Yeah. You now have a system where you're training up young lawyers and there's a clinic at Monash Uni. Can you talk a bit about that? You know, as I mentioned, one of the most inspiring parts of our work is seeing young people. They have very different values and understanding of society Mm. and they give me enormous hope. And one of the great things that we are doing both in Sydney and in Melbourne is running university clinics where students actually get practical experience in doing social justice work. They actually work on our cases. And the feedback we get is, first of all, they don't do any practical work at law school. Mm. It's all academic. It's all book learning. So they love the fact that it's practical. But more than that, they're doing good with it and they're learning skills that they can take with them throughout their lives. And we've seen our alumni take really interesting positions with Aboriginal legal services around Australia, judges, associates, not-for-profit sector. And we've changed people's career paths because when you're at law school, you get taught the main goal is to get a job in a big commercial firm. And I think, particularly since COVID, people are reassessing their values and where they actually want to be. And I'm seeing real change and it gives me hope. It's very exciting. I think you're right about the way that the young people think and behave and the things that are important to them. It's really inspiring and it's so different from when you know you and I were growing up. And that's what gives me hope too, because I think, well, you know, maybe maybe the sea will still have fish in it in 2030 or whenever it's supposed to run out. You know, things like that. I have a whole great stake in, in what our young people are doing and thinking. Speaking of pride, what are your proudest moments in the last 15 years? Hmm. It's, it's an interesting question. Obviously, the cases of Cornelia Rao and Vivian Salon were groundbreaking because they changed hearts and minds. Mm. But then um, the case of Miss Two, by the way, it's really interesting that cases that tend to change attitudes in this country involve women and children. Yes. Uh, and incidentally, you know that the theme music to this podcast is Miss Do by is it really? Felix Rival. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So I, I think, and I think it's because we can empathise with women and children and their vulnerability, particularly with children, their innocence. Mm. Because our governments demonise and send negative messages, not just about refugees and asylum seekers, but messages about First Nations people. Mm. But mothers and children have a different message. So the case of Miss Do really did change my career path. I could see the injustice being perpetrated by policing, but never in my wildest dreams did I see injustice in healthcare. I mean, Miss Do was, I think she was 26-year-old Aboriginal woman from Western Australia. 
she'd been the victim of a domestic violence incident where she uh, had a broken rib and that rib had become infected. The police turned up at the house. She was hoping that you know her partner might be taken away. taken away, but instead they arrested her and him and they arrested her not because she'd committed a crime, but rather she hadn't paid a fine. Mm. And in those days, and this is one of the reforms that came out of our work, you were able to be arrested just for not paying a fine. So when police brought her in, of course, against all policy, they interviewed her about her injuries in front of the perpetrator. Mm. And then she was seen as a faker when later on she said, I am in excruciating pain. When she actually said, actually, you know what, I couldn't say it in front of him, but I'm really hurt. And I'm really sick. Yeah. And so the next um, 24 hours, she was locked up for a fine default. She was actually deteriorating health-wise extremely significantly. So much so that the police did take her to the hospital twice. Mm. But because the hospital had been primed, we got some really interesting insight into psychology in that case. When a, when a prisoner is brought in by police, the, the patient or the customer becomes the police not right. the injured person. Okay. All the healthcare staff are trying to help the police. They're the good guys. The patient is a baddie. And then the police say, we think she's faking. So everyone starts thinking, well, I've got to please the police. She's faking. They didn't do the tests that they needed to and sent her back. They just didn't do the tests. No. They didn't do a scan. They would have seen she had a broken rib. Yeah, I would have thought that was kind of basic No, they, they Because she was in excruciating pain, oh. when they touched her, she jumped... And they felt that was unusual and she was faking. They could have done a test to prove it, but they didn't want to keep the police waiting. They didn't want to call out the radiologist in the middle of the night for an Aboriginal woman. So they sent her back twice. And unfortunately, and and the tragic thing about this case, it's all on video because she was in a CCTV cell. You could Mm. actually watch her dying. And the cruelty of the police was admitted to. The police actually said during the coronial inquest, you know what? When asked the question, they said, I think we did behave inhumanely to her. The doctors and nurses denied all responsibility. But there was some good that came out of that case. We're not, we didn't do it just, just for the sake of it. There's a custody notification scheme that was brought in by the West Australian government. Every time an Aboriginal person is locked up or taken in by police, you have to call the Aboriginal Legal Service. Find the falters are no longer jailed in WA. Uh, the, the doctor that was involved was charged by their healthcare authority. So there has been repercussions. By charge, does that mean he can no longer practice? Well, he was disciplined. Mm. And, and I think I, I'd have to check on a fine. But yes, certainly he was mm. processed through disciplinary proceedings. Right. One thing that struck me when you were talking earlier about the attitudes of police towards First Nations people, have they tried to instill a program of Aboriginal law officers? Yeah, look, there's some talk about that, mm. about having more Aboriginal officers. But the feedback that we get is that if they're disempowered, if they're not in the leadership position, mm. then it's really hard and, and it shouldn't be expected of them to run anti-racist policies. They're part of the system. And because the police force is kind of almost like the military, mm. in the police force, it's really hard to buck the system. Yeah. So the change has to start from the top and it has to be a cultural change that runs throughout the system. Now, more police officers can make a difference. And one of the areas that has been successful is 
100% First Nations police running a station in Western Australia. Yeah. If you don't have the white overseer, yeah, that's you a can great idea. create change, mm, mm. but it's slow. And I think one of the things that we're pushing for is saying, look, police have a job to do, and I think they have a hard job to do. Maybe the question should be, who should be responding to mental health or incidents that don't need a police officer? Unfortunately, we don't fund services, mental health services, well enough. First responders might be, uh, it might be better if they were health ambulance, professionals. Ambulance yeah. officers. And yeah. then, okay, if someone has a knife, then you call the police. Mm. And the police do what the medical officers suggest, not the other way around. Yeah. Yes. And you'll find that that leads to better outcomes. Mm. The other thing that was really interesting, oh, you said lots of interesting things yeah. today, but about the overrepresentation of female First Nations Indigenous people in prisons. Yes. They're the fastest growing cohort in prisons around the country. That's extraordinary. And why is that? Well, look, I think it, it, it's a combination of two factors. I think get tough on crime and then the way the laws are implemented is not equal. So if you're a woman who drinks in the suburbs of Melbourne and Sydney, uh, in the wealthy suburbs, you're unlikely to be visited by police. But there's an over-policing of First Nations communities. Often alcoholism or drug addiction is a sign of a mental health problem. And instead of addressing those problems, over-policing leads to uh, arrest, Multiple arrests lead to incarceration. So it's a combination of factors. If there are women that are interacting with police, perhaps they should be interacting with healthcare workers and psychologists and they wouldn't be ending up criminalised. But also police aren't going into wealthy areas and coming across these issues. These, in, in, in wealthy areas, it's done behind closed doors. Exactly, they're behind very high fences. Exactly. And, and unfortunately, you know, I'll say this, our laws, although they apply to everyone equally, they aren't being enforced equally. And you see police harassment and over-policing of Aboriginal communities, even in things as innocuous as bike helmet laws. Bike helmet laws are a pathway to criminality to young Aboriginal kids. They can't afford helmets. They get picked up by the cops mm. multiple occasions. It's a gateway to criminal justice. And then they're, you know, then they're in isolation for a year. Correct. And if police were serious about safety, if this was a safety issue, give away bike helmets. It'd be a lot cheaper than locking kids up in youth detention. Mm. So what's the one thing you'd like us to take away from today, George? What is your message to us? Well, I'd like people to, <laughs> to look at our systems whether it's health or justice or a prison or refugees in detention, and really look at what's happening in our society and stand up for those who are being essentially picked on by the system. Our whole focus of our system is against those who are the most vulnerable and stand up for people's rights. You know, one of the things, you know, some of my team talk about is just educating yourself about the problem. Mm. It's insidious. We, we, we don't have racist laws like um, Aboriginal people can't drink in pubs. But racism exists in different ways now. As I mentioned earlier, it's about how the laws are enforced. So educate yourself about the history of our country. Read Indigenous stories. Watch 
uh, First Nation series on SBS. There are some really good series there. Watch them with your children and discuss them. Have hard conversations. Support the Uluru Statement. Support a voice to Parliament. One of the things I see uh, as a, a yawning gap is that I shouldn't be having this conversation with you. The leader of First Nations communities should be having it. But who are they? Mm. We don't even know who they are because... Our governments have effectively squashed them down, squashed them, and Mm. there is no leadership. Mm. I think having a true voice that can speak for people would be very powerful. Mm. And then maybe volunteering and and donating to organizations that are doing a great job. You know, today we heard from all sorts of people from the ASRC and and National Justice Project, but there are organizations doing great work throughout our country. Are we doing anything if we press a button on a petition? Yes. You know, everything helps. And social media, whilst it can be corrosive and divisive, it can also educate. So if you see a great program like Unheard or Incarceration Nation... Or Stateless. Or Stateless, which is a great representation of what's going on in our detention centres, get that message out there to your friends in a gentle way. Hmm. I hate the, you know, the strident (laughs) Strident, voices. yeah. Yeah, and I want to bring people together and see our common humanity... But do get those messages out in a kind way and, and spread the word, have the discussions, and hopefully we can create change. And not give up hope. No, never give yeah. up hope. Thanks, George. Thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Igniting Change podcast. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please rate or review. See you next time. <laughs>